the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in that portion of scripture that we read at the beginning, the gospel according to St. John, the first chapter, and verse 17, the 17th verse in the first chapter of the gospel according to St. John. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. For the law was given by Moses, or through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now we were considering this self-same verse last Sunday evening, because it is one of those momentous statements which in and of itself contains the whole essence and pith of the Christian message. And therefore it is a verse to which we can return because of the many-sidedness of the truth which it contains. The Apostle here, I would remind you again, and indeed in the whole of this introduction to his gospel, which is generally called the prologue, he is setting before us the marvel and the greatness and the wonder of this thing which had just taken place when he wrote the coming of the Son of God into this world of kind. Now to John this is the most remarkable and astonishing thing that has ever happened. That is why he bursts forth in this amazing and extraordinary manner. Here he sees the thing above everything else that is of value to the world in its loss and sin and in its shame. And therefore, he sets it forth. He wants all men to believe it. He tells us towards the end of his gospel in the 20th chapter that he's merely selected certain things. He says if everything were to be written, even the world itself would not be able to contain the books that should be written. But, he says, these things I have written, that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, and knowing that may have life through him. That is, therefore, I say, his grand object and objective. And he delights in doing it. Why? Well, because of the nature of the message that he has got to convey. Now, this is the message, of course, of the entire Bible. The business of this book is uh, to come to us as we are in our world, with all its problems and trials and troubles and miseries, and to bring to us a word from God. That's the meaning of the Bible. That's what the Bible is. It's God revealing himself. It is God speaking. Now, that's, of course, obviously fundamental and absolutely vital to our whole position. I say the whole Bible is a revelation from God. And that is why it is the most wonderful book in the world tonight. The Old Testament is not just an account of men seeking for God. The Old Testament, like the New, is an account of God speaking to men and seeking men and saving men. This is, I say, why it is the most glorious thing that we could be considering on a Sunday night such as this. 
we are all aware of the state of the world. We can see the problems. They ought to be obvious to the very blind. Why is the world as it is? Why is there all this trouble and turmoil and unhappiness? Why do we all know such failure in our own lives and such heartbreaks? And what can we do about it all? That's the great question. Well, now I say, here comes this book. And it gives us the only answer to these questions. All other answers have been tried and have failed. This is the one thing that the world, that mankind, still continues to reject. It will not face it. It will not consider it. And yet the whole time, it is God speaking and God telling us. Now, that's the record of this book. It's the account of what God has said and what God has done. About us, about our world, about the very predicament in which we find ourselves even at this moment. The Bible isn't a book that calls upon us to speculate. It isn't merely a stimulus to our thought. It isn't just an aid to our endeavor like every other book is. We thank God for every help and for every aid. It's no part of the preaching of the gospel to derogate from such things. But I'm saying the Bible is in an entirely different class. The Bible comes as a proclamation. It comes as an announcement. As the Apostle Paul put it, you remember, on that famous occasion when he first visited the famous city of Athens, he said, Whom you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. They were seeking, trying to find I've come amongst you, says the apostle, not to join you in some quest or to aid you in your endeavor. I've come to make a declaration, a proclamation. And that is the whole message of the Bible. And that is what we are doing here this evening. We are not meeting together as the world meets uh, at a difficult and critical moment in its history to see if we can find some way out or some solution to put forward our suggestions and our ideas and perhaps send them to the Prime Minister or to a government or to some international conference or congress. No, no. That isn't Christianity. That isn't the business of the church. We meet together to consider what God has done. What God has said. What God has done. Now, I say, thank God we've got this to turn to when we've looked at everything else and it leads to nothing but to increasing despair we come and we begin to listen to what God has said, to what God has done. Now then, I was reminding you last Sunday evening that John here, in a very wonderful manner, picks out the two outstanding things that God has done about men and about his salvation. The first was the giving of that law through Moses. One of the most momentous events of all. It stands out in the Old Testament. Everybody refers back to it. Why? Well, because it was God speaking directly to those children of Israel, making certain things known to them. A most momentous happening and event. And John puts it side by side with this other. With the coming of the Son of God into the world. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Oh yes, these two things should be put together in order that we may look at them and compare them 
and contrasted. And John, I believe, has another object in mind as he does this, and that is to show us the transcendent glory of the second. That doesn't again detract anything from the first, what God did when he gave the law through Moses. No, no, but uh, even that great and mighty as it was, as it were, drops into the background. When you put it side by side with this, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, last Sunday evening, we were contrasting the law and grace and truth. We were reminding ourselves of the message of the law. We were reminding ourselves of this grace and truth that have come through Jesus Christ. Oh, I trust that we saw very clearly, as Paul puts it in writing to the Romans, in the third chapter and the twentieth verse, by the law is the knowledge of sin. It can't go beyond that. The law brings home to us a conviction of sin. It reveals sin. It brings it out of its hiding places. It... Uh, states it clearly and underlines it. It makes it exceeding sinful. By the law is the knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in thy sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Oh, how we ought to thank God this evening that the message of Christianity is not some new variant on the law. So many people seem to think it is. That that is the message of Christianity. That it's just an appeal to us to live a better life. That Christ came to tell us to be friendly and kind and loving and hospitable and so on. That's just another law. Thank God I say it isn't that. Because if we couldn't keep the Ten Commandments and the old moral law, how much less could we keep the Sermon on the Mount and this new law? By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Ah, we've looked at that contrast, but come, there are further contrasts. And on this Sunday evening before Christmas Day, what can we do better than this? There are further contrasts here, and I want to work them out with you. This is the whole message of Christianity. I'm here, I say, primarily to make this announcement, this proclamation, to say what's happened. I'm not here to consider with you the problems and the difficulties of life in and of themselves and to stop at that and then to seek some psychological solution or any other solution. No, no, that isn't Christianity. Christianity is this announcement that grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. You go to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And there you'll find an account of the preaching of the early church. What did those apostles preach? Did they just go around and consider the difficulties and the problems and express their opinions? They did nothing of the sort. They preached Jesus and the resurrection. Paul would go into a synagogue and he would reason out of the scriptures, proving and alleging that the Christ must needs have suffered and that this Jesus which I preach unto you is the Christ. That's the message. It's this message of John's prologue. This person. Very well, then, let's look at it. He's got two further contrasts here, I'm suggesting. And here's the first. 
The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came. Not were given, but came through Jesus Christ. Now then, what's this? What's the meaning of this contrast? I want to suggest to you that it's the most important contrast. The law was given through Moses. It was given. In other words, Moses himself was not really essential to it at all. God happened to choose Moses. He might have chosen somebody else. And Moses wasn't chosen because of anything unique about him. It, what makes Moses unique is that God chose him as the vehicle, the channel, the transmitter of the law which God had given to him. Now, we saw last Sunday night that the Moses wasn't, uh, that the law wasn't Moses' idea. It wasn't something that Moses, as it were, had excogitated out of his mind. It wasn't the result of Moses' rumination and life and problems. No, no. Moses went up onto the mountain. God gave him the law. The law was given. And Moses carried it down and he handed it to the people. You remember the story. Now, Moses, and this is the point, Moses was not essential to it was given to him. He passed it on. He is merely the channel. He himself is not central and vital. And what he transmitted, of course, was just a teaching. Ten commandment, moral law, ethical code, ceremonial law. Go through it all. Put it all there. It's a teaching. It was given. God gave the teaching to the children of Israel through Moses. But now notice the difference. Grace and truth came. Not was given. Why am I emphasizing this? Well, for this good reason. That here is something that we must never lose sight of or never lose hold of. That Christianity is essentially the person of Christ himself. This is not just another teaching that's been given. It is a teaching, but it's much more than that. And before we even consider the teaching, we've got to consider this person. It came. Now a teaching doesn't come. A teaching is given. But a person comes. So John deliberately chooses this word, word came. We can't say here, as I've just been saying about the law, that the person as such is more or less irrelevant and unimportant. It's the exact opposite here. The person here is everything. For the grace and the truth that we have is something that has come in him, in the person. It is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ that is of supreme importance. Oh, let me say it once more. It can never be said too frequently in this modern world that Christianity is not primarily a teaching. It is not primarily a point of view. It's constantly being travestied in that way as if this kind of statement that we have in my text tonight had never been, had never been written. All that sort of thing is given. But this isn't something given in that way. Grace and truth have come. 
And unless you and I are clear about this person, it doesn't matter how Christian our ideas may be. The world has adopted many of the ideas and the teachings of Christianity. A man like the late Mr. Gandhi who died a non-Christian and who said he wasn't a Christian and never pretended to be a Christian. He borrowed a lot of the New Testament teaching and he said it was excellent. He didn't know of anything better and he advocated it and told people to practice it. Yes, but he'd never accepted the person. He was regarding Christianity as something given, as the law was given through Moses. He says this higher truth has been given through Jesus Christ, but he's denying the gospel. It hasn't been given, it's come. And you notice how people still do, do this kind of thing. You read in their books or in their articles. They say, what has the world got to do at a time like this? Well, they say it's about time that the world began to read and to listen to the message of the great religious teachers, the great religious geniuses of all the ages. And who are they? Well, Moses, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and John the Baptist, and Jesus, and Paul, and Confucius, and Mohammed, and, on, and Buddha, and on they go. Ah, you see, he's just one. He's the same as Moses. And he's been given a teaching, and he's passed it on. Oh, no, I say, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. Grace and truth came. It's this person that matters. It isn't his teaching primarily. It is he himself and what he's done. He's being born. He's living as a boy. His work as a carpenter. He's coming out at the age of 30 and his preaching and proclamation. His miracles. Yes, his death upon the cross, his burial, the grave, the end, no, the resurrection, the ascension. That's the thing that matters. That's Christianity. Grace and truth came. He came, he was here, he went. You can't say that about a teaching. You can't say that about a message. No, no, everything here is in the person. So grace and truth, as John reminds us, have come through Jesus Christ. But wait a minute. I want to open out this word come. And perhaps the best way of opening out the word come is to take the other contrast that we have in the text. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Here's the contrast. Here is the contrast of contrast. Here is the uniqueness of it all. This is the hidden meaning in the word came. Who has come? Where has he come from? Grace and truth came came into the world, have come to us. Where have they come from? I say they've come in a person. Who is the person? Where has he come from? Here's a coming. Well, now then, let us consider something of the answer to this great question, as John outlines it in this wonderful prologue. Moses. Jesus Christ. Moses. Who is Moses? Well, Moses is but a man like other men, as I've already been reminding you. Moses, born of a human father and mother like everybody else. Moses, 
A man amongst men, a sinful man, a man like all other men in every other respect, through Moses, says John. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I ask again, who is this? Who has come? Where does he come from? What does it all mean? Well, let me try and hold it before you once more. And oh, may the Holy Spirit so bring it home to us tonight that we shall see something, just have a glimpse, a fleeting glimpse, that would be enough and would make heaven for us of this meeting tonight, of the thing that happened when grace and truth came in Jesus Christ. Who is he, I ask? What does this coming mean? Well, let John answer the question. I'm simply going to expound statements to you that are probably more familiar to you than any other statements in the whole of the Bible. But have you and I ever really caught their meaning? Have we been thrilled as we've realized what they convey? Here is the answer. In the beginning. In the beginning. When was that? Well, that is a reference to the creation of the world. You notice that the book of Genesis starts in with exactly the same words as this prologue of John's Gospel. The first three words in the Bible are, In the beginning. And here they are again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the world. This is a reference, I say, to the time when the world was created out of nothing. So what John is asserting at this point is that this person who has come existed already before anything was made or created. It is just a very wonderful way of saying that he has existed from all eternity. Before time, before the world, before creation, before anything, he was, in the beginning, was. We are looking, you see, at a little babe in a, in a manger there in Bethlehem at this moment. And this is what John is telling us about him. In the beginning was the word. He was there existing before the beginning. While the Holy Spirit brooded over that chaos and before it, he was everlasting, eternal, without beginning of days. In the beginning, before anything was made that was made, before creation ever began, he existed. Well, let's go on to the next. The next is the word, word. In the beginning was the word. With a capital W. What is a word? What does the whole idea of a word convey to us? Well, there need be no dispute about this. The meaning of words is to convey and to express and to reflect uh, our minds. We express our minds 
through our words. The, begin the business of a word is to express a mind or an outlook. Or if you like to look at it another way, the, the business of words is to reveal what we think and what we are. As a man speaks, so he is. Expression and revelation. And John, under divine inspiration, chooses this very word, you see, to describe this babe in the manger. He, he says, is the word. It means that he expresses and reflects perfectly the mind of God. He is a perfect and complete revelation of God as he is and of the mind of the everlasting and eternal God, the Word. Now then, this is just another way of saying that he is a perfect expression and revelation of God. Now, that is something that is stated endlessly in the Scriptures. Let me give you just one other very notable example of the same thing at the very beginning of the epistle to the Hebrews. Listen to this. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's it. He is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. The word expresses and reveals and Christ is the perfect expression of almighty and eternal God. He's speaking of the babe in the manger at Bethlehem. But look at another word, a little word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. It's a pity that they've translated it with that word with. It means it's all right in a sense, but it doesn't say enough. Do you know what it means? It means face to face with. In the beginning was the word, and the word was face to face with God. He's talking about this person. And he says that from eternity this blessed person was face to face with God. And what does that convey? Well, being face to face with always suggests friendship and fellowship and intimacy. Indeed, the closest possible fellowship that is conceivable, a fellowship in which they both took eternal and everlasting delight. Can we conceive of that? Father and Son face to face from all eternity, enjoying fellowship and communion with one another, looking as it were into one another's eyes. That's this babe in the manger. In the beginning, the word face to face with God. Not merely an expression of God, but another person who is with God and face to face with God. And then he adds even to that to make it perfectly plain to us all. And he says, and the word was God. 
God the eternal Son. Oh, my dear friends, how inadequate is language, how poor is our thought and how poor expression. We are looking into the great mystery of the blessed eternal trinity. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We are so earthbound and so blind, are we not? We can't understand, of course, we are not meant to, but can we conceive of it even? But that's what we are being told. We are looking at a little babe, we can all do that. We are looking at a fact in history that 1957 years ago, uh, there was that little babe born in a stable. There was no room in the inn, you remember, the census and the crowd and the crowding out and nobody taking notice of this poor pregnant woman. And there she is hustled into the stable and gives birth to a child and they put him into the manger. That's what we are talking about, but who is he? The Word, the one who's been face to face with God from all eternity without any beginning at all. The Word was God. And then he goes on in the second verse, the same, he says, was in the beginning with God. Well, the great thinkers and theologians of the church have generally put these things like this. They have said that he is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father. But listen. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You know, when God acts, he reverses all our standards and all our ideas and all our thoughts. Is there anything more helpless than a babe? They wrapped him in swaddling clouts and they put him there to lie in the manger and he was as helpless as a babe has ever been. And yet, you know, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the one through whom everything has been made. God deputed this to him. He actually did the work and the business of creation. Everything was made by his fingers. All the stars and the constellations. You know those words that we were singing just now? They put it very perfectly. I wonder whether you noticed it. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He who throned in height sublime sits amidst the cherubim. But I like that. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies, fashioned Orion, suspended these constellations there in that outer empty space, worked it all with his own fingers through him. All things were made and without him was not anything made that is made, the Creator. And then in verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. What does this mean? Well, John is in a sense just repeating his own phrases. In him was life. Yes, the full life of God. 
All the divine essence, as it were, is in him. It's in the Father, it's in the Son, it's in the Holy Spirit. So this babe lying in the manger is the source of all life and of all being. In him was life. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, says the Apostle Paul. It's exactly the same thing. Well, let me complete my account by putting it like this. Verse 18 tells us, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Some say it should be translated like this. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And he is the only begotten Son. Yes, but he's God. He was God. He's not created. He always was. He's ever been, he's ever coming out of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together from eternity. The only begotten God, the only begotten Son of God, the glory we beheld is glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. What is the Christmas message? Oh, the Christmas message is just this. That this person whom I've been trying to describe in terms of John's prologue came into this world. If you like it in a phrase, it's all here in verse 14. And the word was made flesh. What does that mean? It means... That he was born as a man, took human nature into him, came in the likeness of sinful flesh, like you and I, we are in the flesh, blood and bones and flesh. This body in which I dwell and in which I tabernacle, the flesh, and man is spoken of often in the Bible as flesh, and the word was made flesh. He, the eternal word, who was face to face with God before time and creation, was made flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He came in fashion as a man. He was, you see, in fashion as God. But what happened at Bethlehem and at the Incarnation was that he came in fashion as a man and in the fashion of a man, in the form and appearance and the reality of human nature. That's what happened at Christmas. Oh, the infinite condescension the marvel and the wonder of it all. You're looking at your newspapers, buying the latest edition, listening to the latest news. You want to hear something momentous, something that is of value. Well, here it is. The Word was made flesh. 
Mild he lays his glory by. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And shout and say, Hail, incarnate deity. What paradoxes. You literateurs, you readers of literature, you're interested in paradox. Well, there it is. Hail, incarnate deity. God is a spirit, but he's incarnate here. The word was made flesh. And this mad and foolish world goes on as if it hadn't happened. And smirks and smiles at it. And bursts of its wisdom and its understanding. And wants something big. And here is heaven come down on earth to dwell the Godhead veiled in flesh. The word was made flesh. Yes. And dwelt among us. The one who from all eternity had looked into the face of God the Father came on earth and looked into the face of a harlot, into the face of a murderer. That's the meaning of the incarnation. That's the way you measure the love of God. But he who had looked face to face with God and was face to face with God looking into that light looking into that burning fire of holiness looking into that everlasting purity comes down and dwells among us and looks into the faces of people like you and myself looks into vileness and ugliness and foulness and wretchedness and woe he came and looked into that and dwelt among us he was in the world in this world as you and I know it. And so the anger in the face of the Pharisees and the jealousy and the bitterness and the foulness and the spite, how could he do it? How could he stand it? How did he endure it, I ask? But he's come and he's done it. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Helplessness, under the law, subject to temptation, tempted in the wilderness by the devil who couldn't tempt him when he was in the form of God, for God neither tempteth nor can be tempted, but here he's come and he's Lord himself, and the devil tempted him forty days and forty nights. Suffered the contradiction of sinners against himself. He who had looked into that face of God, looked into the face of men, and as he was looking at them, they spat in his face. And then humbled himself still further, even to the death of the cross. He by whom and through whom all things were made and without whom was not anything made that was made, was crucified in weakness and died and was buried in a grave. The word was made flesh. Grace and truth came. That is the message of Christmas. 
That's the thing that happened 1957 years ago. And why did he come? Well, we are told all about it. I leave the words simply with you. He came to declare God, to reveal him, to teach him, to lead him out, that we might know him. So he said, he who hath seen me hath seen the Father. God like this, like I am, look at me, and you see God. He came to bring this grace and truth. We looked at it last Sunday. Let me remind you what it means. It means the grace of forgiveness of sins. He came to make this grace possible by bearing the punishment in his own body. He took it on himself and God punished it in him. So the grace of forgiveness comes to us. And the truth and the knowledge. And indeed we are told here in a wonderful way. He came that we might have authority to become sons of God if we believe in him. I can't improve on the way in which John Calvin put it. The Son of God became the Son of Men, that the sons of men might be made the sons of God. He came to give us this second birth. He, the Word, came down and humbled himself and went down to that death and the cross and the grave and rose, why? That we might be raised and lifted up, might become the sons of God of a hope of heaven and of seeing the everlasting glory and spending our eternal life and everlasting, spending our everlasting existence in the glory and enjoying. Ah, oh, my dear friends, I leave you with certain questions. Do you realize that that is what happened on that first Christmas morning? When you think of that babe and look at him, do you say to yourself, veiled in flesh, the God I see? Do you realize that that is what has happened? Do you realize why it's happened? Why did God do this? Why did Christ come? Why did this, the most amazing thing that ever has or ever can happen, why did it happen? For there will never be anything greater than that. Never. When he comes again, it will not be greater than this. No, no. This is the greatest thing that even God could do. I speak it with reverence. The word was made flesh. There's nothing beyond that. This is the highest, deepest, biggest manifestation of God's everlasting love. Why did he do it? There's only one answer to that question. It was the only way whereby grace and truth come to you and come to me. He came and he did all this because it is the only way to save us. The only way to rescue us from the condemnation of the law. The law that came was given through Moses. It's the only way of escape. 
If we don't believe this, we are under the law and under the wrath of God and under condemnation and are destined for hell. He came. The word was made flesh. Because there was no other way whereby a single human being could be forgiven and reconciled to God and be made a child of God. He came in order that grace might come to us. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Grace abundant. The grace of pardon and forgiveness, reconciliation and renewal, power and the blessed hope that can never fade away. Do you believe that? Have you received this truth? Do you know in your own life and experience the grace and the truth that have come through Jesus Christ? Look again at that day. Go back over the history. Realize what it is and why it has happened. And so be saved. Amen. Um.